0: Hi, everyone. This is Trish Kendall with your host for the Choose and Become interview series. I made five critical choices on my journey to enduring success. I picked up the phone, which was a first choice. I committed to a two-way agreement. I built trust in myself and inspired the trust of others. I created belonging. And finally, I embraced my boundless capacity to give love and to receive love. Now, in this interview series, I get to interview people who I admire. And I'm gonna introduce my special guest here in a second and ask them, my guests, to share a little bit of their lessons and insights and wisdom as it relates to their journeys to enduring success. I ask them to give me their perspective on these five choices. And so today I'm happy to have with me my colleague and friend, Martin G. Moore, Marty. Hi, Marty.
1: Hey, Trish, how are you? Great to be here.
0: It's so great to have you here. And so Marty, as we like to call you, although you'll find him as Martin G. Moore, is really the no-bullshit leader. And one might say, Trish, you talk about love. And Marty is the no-bullshit leader. So how are these two things going to come together? They completely come together. So Marty, in a second, I would love for you just to share more about yourself with my community, Marty the Man. uh, As the founder of Your CEO Mentor, you help a ton of leaders out there. Um, I'm just going to do a little shout-out really quick because Marty's pretty humble. He's also (laughs) the author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling No Bullshit Leadership, and the host of the smash hit podcast with the same name. So Marty, take it away. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Thanks, Trish. Well, as you can tell from my accent, I live in Boston, um, but it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't always that way. I was brought up in Sydney, Australia. Uh, family of five, very unremarkable upbringing in you know, a you know, middle-class family out there. And uh, I became a university dropout. Now, my parents were fanatical about educating their five children, of of whom I was one. I was the second oldest. And uh, they spent all of their money, time, and focus on getting us the best education that they could possibly afford. And so when I squandered it with my undergraduate degree by dropping out of my law studies at University of Sydney in my sort of early 20s, they must have been apoplectic, but they were very forgiving and very kind. And they knew that I'd find my feet eventually, which was great. So I went into business and I had a corporate career in Australia, initially in IT, funnily enough, as a software developer. And this is way before being a coder was cool, but there was no Silicon Valley happening here. I, w- I was working for a large bank in Australia when I first came out. And then I went into project management, had a, had a great time in that, running some big projects. And I found my love for leadership. And so I decided to get serious, you know, about, I don't know, 25 years ago and have a corporate executive career. And because I'd come from an IT background, I was able to transverse a lot of different industries and job families, which was awesome, right? So I got experience in, you know, mining, transportation, insurance, energy, all at executive level. And I managed to get jobs in different job families like, you know, of course, chief information officer with my IT background, uh, CFO. Uh, head of strategy, and also ahead head of sales and marketing. So I've sort of done the tour. And because I wasn't an expert in anything in particular, it gave me the opportunity to really learn how to bring out the best in the experts around me, the people who were working for me, who actually had to get results. And so this uh, absolute focus on being able to get the best out of people, to connect with them, and use that to produce outstanding results really became my trademark. So in 2018, after I finished my five-year stint as chief executive of a large energy business. Which you
0: hit the ball out of the park.
1: Well, I, I did okay. Five years. <laughs> it,
0: was,
1: it was a tough gig. But if you look at, if you look at the headline numbers, uh, in the five years I was there, the EBITDA earnings grew from $17 million to $441 million. So that's a compound annual growth rate of 125%. But on top of that, something I'm equally proud of is that our safety record was world-class. So mm-hmm. for any of you out there who speak safety statistics, we had a lost time injury frequency rate of 0.6 injuries per million hours worked, which is you know, sort of world-class as well. So I'm, I'm equally wow. proud of that because that's looking after the people too. So, uh, so that was where I was. And in 2018, when that finished, I set up this business, Your CEO Mentor, with my daughter, Emma Green, who's still based in Sydney. So we're on other sides of the world. And most of our team, our marketing team, is is based in Sydney. Uh, So our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. That's why I'm here. That's why Emma's here. That's why we do everything that we do. And uh, we're just starting to scratch the surface. We're doing okay.
0: Yeah. And I love seeing Emma. I love seeing her. I love hearing her. The two of you really mesh so well together. Uh, And Marty, by all accounts, you are really one of the most successful people in my orbit. I mean, you are incredibly successful professionally and personally as a father, uh, as a husband. I believe we each have our own definition of success. What I want you to share with us a little bit is what you think about when it comes to enduring success. What does that Uh, mean? This
1: is just, I, I mean, this is the crux of everything, isn't it Trish, because so many people view success as being some sort of material attainment of different things, and it's probably the worst measure. Um, if, if money was the answer, then you wouldn't have all these trust fund babies committing suicide at you know, the age of 20, 25, and it happens a lot. Uh, so, so there's got to be more to life, and the older I get, the less interested I am in material things. Now, don't get me wrong, money is cool. You've got to have it because it makes everything else easier. And I wouldn't be able to do what I do now unless yeah. i build up some level of financial stability through my corporate career. And that gave me choices and options, which was fantastic. But enduring success to me is very simple. It's be about being able to live my true nature and purpose. What was I put on this earth to do? And to be afforded the luxury of being able to do that is just an incredible privilege. Now, there's a lot of moving parts to this, Trish. And as I said, you know, the the... The money thing is awesome. If you think about this from uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, until you look after those lower order needs, how on earth are you going to be able to think about self-actualization when you're worried about the electricity bill this month? So there's got to be a level of building the foundations underneath that. And then, you know, you only have to go a little further down the path till you find how important health and family is. Because when you have a catastrophe or a disaster in the family, someone close to you, is hurt or is is unwell, you understand very quickly what's important and what's not. And the older I get, the less time I have to engage with people who uh, aren't people who are additive. People who uh, either are a drain on my time and energy or uh, people who fundamentally don't have a mindset that's conducive to me being my best. So most of the people we attract to the no bullshit leadership brand are people who are genuine. They want to improve. And in fact, the dedication on my book says to every leader with the courage to be better. So anyone who actually just wants to take that step and say, I know it can be better. And I'm prepared to do a few things to make that happen. I'm going to put a bit of work in here. That's the sort of people we have in our community. And we absolutely love that. It's so cool. But um, this is a really long answer to a very simple question, isn't it, Trish? But,
0: but, it's not, but see, I'm, I don't think it rolling. is a simple question. That's the thing. I don't That's think it's right. a simple, it, it, it's not a simple question. And no, now this not. is going to lead me, because I'm going to, I'm you know the questions I'm going to ask you. That's sure, the thing. Sure. I I always say, are you in? And you're like, I'm, I'm in on totally
1: this. In. Totally in. But
0: before I even get to the first critical choice or the first critical choice that I made that I want to get your perspective on. Mm. Uh, obviously, I follow you. Obviously, I listen to all of your podcasts and uh, I love your podcast episodes. And I also like your moments, the, oh, the, yeah. the shorter moments. I like both of those. And the one that I listened to recently, the episode less than 20 minutes, but it was um, Marty's perspective with hindsight and maturity.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, the, one of the things that I gra- one of the things that I grabbed from it is how you talked about the accumulation of choices. Absolutely. And Marty, at sixty one, can I say that? I already did say that. Well, you said it to everyone.
1: <laughs> I can't. I can't believe you said. No, of course. I'm, <laughs> I'm very, re- very relaxed about my age because I reckon I'm going to be the most sprightly seventy five year old you ever see. As I'm still you are
0: business. You are. You are. <laughs> So you at 61, thinking about the choices that you made and the accumulation of those choices. And I just thought that that was so perfect as we get together right now.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. The, the, the accumulation of yep. choices. Sorry, Trish. Was, was that a question? Go. Let me answer it. Go. I know, it was, a, I know it was only a statement, but I want to have a crack at this one because it's so important. Yeah. Um, I've always said that, you know, until you get to about age 30, you know, well, there's circumstances. There's a lot of bouncing off walls. There's just trying to find your feet and learn what it's like to be an adult. But beyond the age of 30 and every year after that, you are exactly where you are because that's where your choices have put you. It, it's just that simple. And every day, the choices we make, big and small and you know, conscious and subconscious, they all take us to the place that we end up. And whenever I look at someone and you know, my wife will say, I feel really bad for such and such, I go... Yeah, you know, there's a lot of years that those choices have actually contributed to that. This, this didn't happen yesterday. This is stuff that, you know, and, and look, bad things happen. Yeah. People go through crises. I get that. But we are basically where we are because that's where our choices take us. It's that simple.
0: Totally. Oh my God. I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. And my entire, we are not going to talk about me in this episode, but my entire (laughs) life experiences are about what choice did I make? good or bad based on the circumstances that I experienced. And it took me absolutely. a while to figure out that I have the power to make choices to better and transform my life. Right. But totally. it's what we do with the circumstances.
1: Yeah, well, a- a- absolutely. And and Trish, your story is actually a hell of a lot more interesting than mine when you boil it down. Uh, very, yeah, but you know, very... people
0: here, people know, <laughs> my community no. knows. I, I want you. Okay. So here's the thing. Five critical choices. The first critical choice I made, I was 20 years old, and that choice was to pick up the phone when my sister called. Yeah. Now, you know that was a profound first choice, but I think people make first choices all the time, whether practical or profound. And what I want to know is what is a first choice that when you reflect, you would say really impacted your journey to enduring success?
1: Yeah, and I look, I thought long and hard about this, Trish, because I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> I was able to think about this really deeply. And I think one of the critical things that struck me, and I made a lot of choices early in life that were driven by my upbringing. I was, I was brought up a Catholic. I'm, I'm now a Reformed Catholic, so I, I don't practice anymore. But it was a great value set to be brought up with. And a lot of the choices I made there were driven by the structure, the doctrine and the expectation of the people around me. The first choice that I remember making, which was so crucial that I made by myself with none of that influence sitting over the top of me, was as a young software developer working for a bank. And this choice was incredibly impactful for me because I remember I was accountable as a, as a very young person for delivering a particular outcome. It was a, it was a new implementation of a system, a financial system in this bank, and it was a really big deal. And I sort of was running point on it. And we had the implementation weekend, and this is back in the days where you know you would stay up day and night for for three days to you get this done. Camp there. And we had a massive issue, and we'd gone too far in the process to roll it back and back out graciously and leave the system the way it was and try again. We had to go forward, and so the bank lost its financial systems for uh, maybe half a day while we while we troubleshooted and and got it all sorted out. And I remember this very clear choice I had because. When the CFO called me into her office and asked me what had happened, in that moment, I had a choice to make. There were all the things that I could have said about, you know, the other people in the team who were supporting me, uh, some of the things that the vendor had done that we, you know, sort of not seen. And I just said at that moment, I thought, I'm going to take accountability for this. And I said, Mary, I just did not foresee that this issue could possibly happen. I completely missed it and it's totally my fault. Now, when I took accountability for that failure, in that moment, she just looked at me and briefly just said, that's okay, Marty, you're doing a fantastic job. You know, I just need to understand what the problem was. She says, you're doing really, really well. She became my biggest supporter. She became my biggest advocate. She became a sponsor for me inside that organisation. And the reason for that was because I didn't try and blame someone else. I just decided I'm going to step yeah. into this. I'm just, I'm just going to own this and take accountability for it. And I'll take whatever consequences come my way. That choice was so critical in forming everything I did from that day on as a leader, because I realized the outcome was so much better just to own it and take the hit up front and see what happened and not be constantly fearful of whatever consequence might come down the road at me and mm-hmm. being able to release that fear was so liberating. And, and I was so lucky to learn this as a young guy, like I was in my mid-20s. And to learn that at that point was so incredibly powerful for me. It's governed a lot of things I've done since then.
0: When did, when did you release your fear? Was yeah, that, it when you spoke it or when you chose that that's what you were doing when you walked into your boss's or the CEO's office? When did you release fresh. the fear?
1: There's been a lot of glasses of red wine between then and now. So I, don't know the exact, <laughs> I don't know the exact moment. All I know is that by the time yeah, I walked out of that it. office, it was such an instantaneous choice. You
0: felt it, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and it was so visceral. And yeah. when I walked out of that office, I felt like I was walking two feet off the ground. Because, you. because not only had I been able to stay true to myself and accept accountability for for what I'd done and my part in this thing, which I was, you know, ultimately accountable for, mm-hmm. but I was able to do so in a way that preserved my reputation, that demonstrated that we were, you know, doing everything we possibly could to rectify the issue, and to have the support of someone very, very senior, I just thought, how yeah. good is this? Like, what? Why do people ever try and avoid the impact of these things when it's never as bad as it seems? And so. The releasing of that fear in that moment was so incredibly important to me. Now, of course, you know, I've had fear about a whole range of other things during my life. But but that, of in course, of course, a, but
0: that was professionally
1: moment. vital. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The second critical choice that I made on the journey was to commit to a two way agreement. And when my sister and her husband, so they intervened, they took me out of my physical surroundings and, and brought me into their home um, to get clean and go through recovery. Uh, but I had to commit to an agreement with them. and It was almost a near contractual agreement. And when I think about a TUI agreement and I wanna get into uh one of the two-way agreements that you have committed to when i think about two-way agreements the power is in committing and i found and what i learned at this point in my life was that at first my actions started from a place of duty and obligation i have to do these things but then it transformed to joy and desire. Like I literally felt a transformation to, I want to do these things. And I think that's the power of the commitment. Absolutely. We enter into two-way agreements all the time, whether we actually are uh, consciously aware or not. Will you give an example of a two-way agreement that you've entered into and any type of experience or transformation that that occurred because of the commitment?
1: Sure, Trish. Uh, and, and just before I give you this one, because I've yes. got a fairly recent one that's, that's quite useful. I think we're making two-way agreements all the time. Some are explicit and some are implicit. Yes. Some are completely... Very internal.
0: well said.
1: Yeah. Some are completely internal. I have agreements that I make between my ego and my superego, if you understand the, <laughs> you know, the the psychological terms. You know, there's there's the better part of me, the, the higher purpose part of me, that's constantly bargaining mm-hmm with my ego drivers that tell me I should do something different. And this is a constant trade-off. And so, so internally, I'm, I'm very, very often making two-way agreements and saying, all right, ego, back in your box, you stay here. I'm gonna satisfy you this way, but I really need to chase this higher purpose over here. So I know that's probably a little bit, you know, transcendental. For the,
0: <laughs> for, it's right but on. It's, it's, but it's yeah. really that,
1: you know, that, that constant struggle internally between, you know, if you think about those, those old cartoons, you know, the angel on one shoulder, the devil yes. on the other, right? So, so this thing's mm-hmm. going on all the time. But to be a little bit more practical and tangible with this, one of the most important two-way agreements I've made was with my daughter, Emma, when we went into this business. And we basically never said anything that would confirm this, or formalise it, or solidify it, but we both knew when we started this that we would never back off. We would never give up, we would never slow down, we would never let an obstacle get in our way, and both of us just operate like that. We're so incredibly committed to our purpose of what we're doing, and it's so much a part of who we are that we just know we will never back off, and it doesn't matter what happens to us or what setbacks there are in the business. We always respond the same way. Our response is always, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's let's fix this. Let's get over it. Let's let's go over the barrier, around the barrier, through the barrier, under the barrier. Doesn't matter. And this is a two-way commitment that we have and that we've made to each other that uh, will be enduring, and and for as long as mm-hmm. you know." As long as I'm standing upright and I'm still working, that's you know that's something that we know that is going to happen.
0: And you guys are doing a fabulous job. I mean, I see everything and I see the success that has been created. And now this has nothing to do with this two-way agreement, but you're a grandfather now.
1: I am.
0: All right. I mean, it's,
1: just, it's just the coolest thing. I'm I'm very young. Florence Florence Green just turned one. Uh, yesterday, which is sort of cool. Oh. But uh, it, it's amazing being a grandfather. And it's a shame that I'm on the other side of the world. My purpose brings yeah. me here because, you know, the US market is just such, a, such a, a big market compared to Australia. Australia, for those of you who don't know, Australia is the same size geographically as the continental US, but it only has 25 million people in it spread around the country, mostly, mostly on wow. the coast. So you've got 330 odd million people in the U.S. and the same sort of surface area you've got in Australia you know, for 25 million people. So there's a lot of nothing there in the middle of wow. Australia. Um, yeah, but, but, but beauty, beauty. Oh, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. And, you know, we'll certainly go back there to retire. But uh, when I look at you know, what's going on here, being here is just so important to have impact. Being in the U.S. is so important. Mm. But it takes me away if I've got two daughters in Australia, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne and my granddaughter, Florence, who's in yeah. uh, Sydney. And, you know, it's awesome that every day I'm getting what we call the Flow Spam, you know, uh, the Florence photos and videos.
0: That's awesome. The Flow Spam? The
1: Flow Spam, yeah, the Spam spam with Flow, you know. So so we're getting, I get spammed each morning with, you know, photos and videos from that day, and we can FaceTime. And uh, I think at one, she's just starting to work out what this strange face is on my daughter's mm-hmm. iPhone. So it's it's good. But, I think um, it's just
0: awesome. And that adds an element to the 2 we agreement with you and Emma, because totally does, yeah. her life has changed. You know, she's a first-time mom, yet her commitment to the business as the CEO of this business
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: didn't change and it probably intensified as she thought about what she's creating for the future for her daughter.
1: Oh, a- a- absolutely. And we, we make no bones about that. We, we talk about Flo's legacy, which yeah. we've created a hashtag on. We call it hashtag Flegacy. So we've got, we've got the whole we've got the whole thing yeah, going. Where on. do you
0: come <laughs> up with these great little things? <laughs> get it going now.
1: <laughs> exactly. Okay,
0: I'll keep us going. Uh because I, I want to get into the to the last three with you. The third sure. critical choice I made was to build trust. And first building trust in myself. I had to trust myself first in order to inspire the trust of anybody else so it started first with me and uh i learned through that process that if i did the little things great great things could happen so i probably have three questions for you in this trust category but i want to start with with was there ever i'm sure there was but was there ever a time that you had to build trust. I look at you and I'm like, there's no way you've never trusted yourself. You were like the most confident, the like put together successful leader. Yet, was there a time that you had to build trust in yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, A couple of times in particular, first time when I was a little bit younger, before I started on this career, when I came, I was in an all boys boarding school in Sydney for six years. So from the age of sort of 11 to 17. And it was a great environment for you know, academic pursuits and sporting pursuits and so forth. But when I came out of there at the age of you know, almost 18, I was so socially immature, it just wasn't funny. I was, I was socially completely at odds. And I come out of an extremely structured environment and went into a completely unstructured environment, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why my law degree ended up being you know, um, majors in, in, in drinking and uh, rugby. So yeah. so the, the, the impact of that on me, I did not handle that well. And during that time, I fell away from uh, probably the values and principles that had steered me successfully up until that time. And I did lose trust in myself through that process. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, what, uh, the, the, the fundamental question is what sort of person am I? Who, who am I? Am I really this person or am I the person who's just been, you know, kept under a bushel for the last, you know, 20, 22, 23 years? And so I had to really struggle with that until I found my path to greater trust. Let's combine that with the fact that my story that I tell myself, that we all have a story we tell ourselves, the story I tell myself is I'm not good enough. That's my story. And that's driven me to incredible success over a period of time because I've been trying to prove that I am good enough to everyone else, but I can only prove it to myself. And until I was comfortable that I am good enough, then it was never going to work. And so the trust in myself that, yes, I'm good enough. And now I say, and I I genuinely believe this, Trish, I'm the most stable person I know. Uh, I have, and and this is success, right? Yeah. It it doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside. If I don't feel completely comfortable in who I am, if I don't have complete congruence, and, you know, when you and I catch up for lunch in the next few weeks, you'll Mm -hmm. find that I'm exactly the same across a, a lunch table with a nice glass of Chardonnay as I am on a podcast interview. This is me. Yeah. And I love the fact that I can just be who I am and that I've you know, developed myself to the point over time of going through hard things and becoming someone who I'm, I'm happy to be. I'm happy to be this person. And I think that's where the trust comes back when you can say to yourself, what you see on the outside is what's on the inside. I feel as though I am you know, a person that I can be proud to be. And I'm doing something meaningful with all the people I touch. And I want to make sure that anyone who comes into contact with me is better off because of that contact.
0: Yeah. And I experienced that with you. You know, I, I said at the beginning, colleague and friend, you, you know, we, we're in the same, I would mm. say, inner circle of, you know, a certain level of a speaker and, and our business. In every experience I have with you, you are you, (laughs) you are you. And, and it's It's it's, good. And I love it. And I'm, and I'm drawn to that. a couple more things. Um, I said that I learned if I did the little things, great, great things happen. Is Mm. there a little thing that you do consistently or did consistently that helped drive you to building trust in yourself or even just drive you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, a- a- absolutely, I think, I think the little disciplines that you can build into your day-to-day life are the things that really help. So for me, when I'm, when I'm at my peak, I've got this little little thing in my head that says, my feet hit the floor at 4.45 a.m. That's when my, my feet hit the floor, not the alarm clock goes off, my feet hit the floor at 4.45. Now, when I'm at my peak, that's happening, just bang, 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 I don't think about it, it just happens. And it's a little bit more challenging now because uh, when I was living in Australia, it was very easy to do because I had a routine in terms of when I could get to bed. Now, of course, living in the US, I'm doing client work in the Southern Hemisphere. And so there's times where I don't get to bed until 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And then that's a challenge. So having that discipline is super important. And, uh, and that's one of those things that for me is just is, is a critical little habit. And you see the difference between successful people and people who still wish they had uh, climbed further to the success they want Mm -hmm. is that they don't have the basic disciplines, those basic little habits that you just master without questioning. And you can just do every day. The the other one for me is, you know, if I feel I need to have a conversation, I don't hesitate. I don't agonize over it. I, I don't try and bargain or avoid. I just step into it. And because I've been doing this for enough years, it feels completely natural and comfortable. And I don't have any fear of conflict at all. So I can have the most difficult conversation under the most difficult circumstances with anyone at any point in time, because that's a discipline I've trained myself into over the years.
0: That's powerful. Yeah, That could be like a game changer. And I love how you just said it's a habit and a discipline.
1: It is. That you
0: have done. So I love those two examples. The last question here is, how does someone inspire your trust? So you have then the chief executive officer or the chief information Mm. officer, you know, the CEO, the CFO, people are probably always trying to earn your trust. How do they?
1: I think what I like to see is a level of openness. I think that's probably the first thing if I can see a level of openness, someone who's prepared to uh, tell the truth, as far as they know it, tell the truth and not sugarcoat things and not embellish them, I think that's someone that I look at and I go, hmm, I can trust you. Now, of course, in my business, everyone gets unconditional 100% trust as the starting point. And then it's theirs to lose. So if you start from this position Mm. of I can trust everyone. And then as you watch them perform and behave, sometimes question marks arise, well, hang on a minute, they weren't entirely honest about that, or hang on a minute, they said they were gonna do this and they didn't do it. And you can just chip away at trust over time from the 100% down to 95 or 80 or 10, as the case may be sometimes. So so that's, that's the basic philosophy of how I look at it. So the first thing is openness. The second thing is doing the things that need to be done. And even when they're hard and I go, okay, I can trust that person. And knowing that, and there's, you know, some great things on trust, you know, the speed of trust by Stephen M. R. Covey. There's a, there's a bunch of resources out there about trust specifically. But for me, it's knowing that someone's going to be straight with me. Someone's going to be honest at any point in time. And as a chief executive, I, I, you know, I look at this from the point of view of a CEO trying to get the trust of the board because you have so few interactions. It's so limited, the amount of time you get to spend in front of them. So every interaction has to be nailing that question, can I trust you as the CEO? And with very limited opportunity, I found that you can build trust extraordinarily quickly if you behave the right way, if you choose the way you say things very carefully, if you demonstrate that you're driven by a set of principles, not by self-interest. So those things all contribute to trust. And when I see a lack of self-interest and an openness, I go, yeah, you're gonna be okay with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. The fourth critical choice I made was to create community and belonging, and and you can see my shadows here. My, it's a beautiful day outside here in Boston, isn't That's it, Marty? Awesome. But it's like we'll just deal with all the all the leaves coming in I'd, here. I'd
1: love I'd love to do that, but I'm in my studio, Trish, and without this well, one around me, it's totally black. <laughs>
0: yeah, but but your studio's awesome, at, and at I, and I. <laughs> Seen you with a lot of your virtual because you do a lot of virtual speeches and meetings Absolutely. and and all of those things. So I love it. Uh, the fourth critical choice I made was to create community and belonging. For for me, I didn't even really I had never experienced what it felt like to belong. Uh, you know, as a as a child, my dad forced us to move all the time from town to town, school to school, and I I then began to. Um, Feel like not belonging was almost powerful. You oh. know, I don't, I don't need you. I don't need that. But that was just a whole bunch of hogwash <laughs> because I desperately wanted yes to belong.
1: Yes and no. I'm going to get back to this.
0: Go. I, well, I, no. I, let's I, just get into it. Deal? Just give me your, give me your perspective. Just get into it right now. Give me your perspective well, I, on what it feels well, like.
1: I, I completely understand what you're saying, and I can see how isolating that is. But there is also power in it. And when I think about a leadership yeah. role. Uh, you can't be close to people in the community sense that you're leading. You've got to have this Hmm. uh, positioning of friendly, not friends. And so you've got to keep a professional distance. Otherwise, you can't lead them effectively and you can't serve them properly if you're too close to them. So that little bit of separation, that little bit of a sense of I don't quite belong here is actually okay in that circumstance. Now, if that's the only area of your life that you're looking at, you can get into trouble fairly quickly. If, if you walk outside of work and you face the same thing, that's terrible. But if you've got this feeling of separation and not belonging necessarily in a leadership role, that's okay. As long as you have a sense of real belonging and community outside of that. And I remember one job in particular where I was you know going through a pretty tough time in a project I was running many years ago. And I had an incredibly tight-knit group of running partners. The level of community we had in that. you know, We, we were running marathons together. So we go out on long training Uh, runs, you know, one and a half, two, two and a half hours uh, on the weekends. And we would just, you know, shoot the breeze and chat. And the connection and the level of bonding in that is unbelievable. And so if you've got that sense of community and belonging somewhere in your life, you don't need to have it everywhere in your life, in my experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and... Marty, you, my, I, I don't think you know this, but when I went through my own little journey of creating belonging, because I do believe that it's you create it, like totally. it's not, it just doesn't just happen, right? Yeah. You and your Absolutely. your running mates created together was through a running group. Right. I okay. There you a go. a running group you in go. Chicago to train for the Chicago Marathon. I had never even run a step in my life. Right. Uh, but yes, so I met these five women and it is the first time that I experienced this sharing of life experiences together. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Like you no, know exactly that's what I'm talking about. Too. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: Oh, and then, and you did multiple marathons. So you're, okay, I, I, I'm gonna ask a couple pointed questions because I want my community to hear the words from uh, successful Marty CEO. What does it feel like not to belong?
1: Um, I, think, I think not to belong. If you are really, really solid in your own core, and if you're really, really solid in your own ability to cope, if you're really, really uh, comfortable with who you are, then the sense of not belonging isn't that bad a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to handle because... I know it's always going to come back. If I have a brief moment where I don't feel a sense of community, I know it'll come back. And I had this when I moved to the US in 2021 before the publication of the book. We moved over here. My wife's a Bostonian, Kathy. We had a little apartment in a a town called Winthrop, which is just out of the Boston city centre. And it was isolating. And I didn't have the same connection to family and friends that I just left behind in Australia. It would have been much harder to cope with if it weren't for a few things. The first thing, of course, being that, you know, well, I don't need the material things, that's irrelevant to me, so I don't care that we've just sold our beautiful big house in you know the leafy suburbs of Brisbane to move over here. Um, More importantly though, it was having that purpose in place. I knew why I was doing it, I knew what was driving me, I was committed to the outcome, and this is to do with long-term thinking, and I knew the community would come back. And so, you know, here we are sort of a couple of years later, We've moved down further South. We're close to all of Kathy's childhood friends. You know, I've, I've found this sense of community again, which is awesome because it hasn't changed the way I feel about my purpose and what I'm here for, but it's just added that extra layer of um, enjoyment and satisfaction and belonging. So that's been really cool.
0: That's awesome. That And you
1: yeah.
0: the answered the next question, which was what does it feel like to belong? So. Yeah. That's perfect. I'm going to take us to our fifth choice. I've kept you longer than I said I would I would keep you, but hey, I just as long as your aren't, with you. As long as
1: your listeners aren't bored, Trish, I'm good to go.
0: It's so good. So the fifth critical choice I made was to embrace my boundless capacity to love. Yeah. Now, when you used the words accumulation of choices in one of your latest episodes, podcast, No Bullshit Leadership podcast, What hit me so hard for me is that the four choices I made before this fifth one, I had to go through my own journey. I wasn't ready or prepared or willing to start with the fifth, but other people people can, they could just start right off the bat with choosing to give love and to receive love. But I couldn't until I accumulated those other choices and they prepared me for this. The distinction I want to make, though, is I'm not talking about love as an emotion, which is not a choice. I'm talking about love, the verb, which is a choice. Absolutely. And not withholding, not guarding and giving love, no matter how that manifests itself for different people. Okay, no bullshit leader. (laughs) Give it to me. Has there been a time in which you have been aware that you have given all of your love. What did it feel like? And would you share it with us?
1: Sure, Trish, I'd absolutely love to. Uh, I, I think my experience is very similar to yours in terms of the fact that I couldn't have done that had I not gone through the journey that I had in terms of learning to trust myself, uh, understanding how the dynamics work between myself and other people, knowing that I was solid internally. I don't think I was in that position. and you've got to go through that now the business that we're running now is all about giving love this is what Mm -hmm. it's about so we yes it's leadership yes it's leadership on the hard edge which is results driven leadership not fluffy leadership and the way love plays into this is I think about this every time I step on a stage I have to think about this beforehand I think about am I going out there to impress or am I going out there to give love? Am I going out there to connect and make people better? And it, it sounds weird to say this, but it's such an important shift in terms of how I turn up when I step onto the stage. And that feeling of giving all of myself, not because I'm trying to impress someone or prove anything, but because, you know, I genuinely want them to walk away better. I genuinely want them to walk away feeling as though I've connected with them and given them something that's been life changing for them. And so you can't do that, or I can't do that, without having this real deep underlying sense of love. And, you know, when I think about people in our community, I I do some weird shit, Trish. You're going to love this, right? So (laughs) when when someone follows me on LinkedIn or someone connects with me on LinkedIn for the first time, I should click on their profile. And if they've got a profile photo there, I go and look at it. And I just look at their face and I just go, hmm, it's really nice to have you in my community. I wonder who you are. I look at their background and, and, you know, I look at their face and I go, you look like a really nice person. I just hope that, you know, you get everything you want in life. And I just have this moment to connect. And it sounds stupid because it's a LinkedIn profile, right? But it's still this process which benefits me, which is just giving that love to someone else by saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm behind you. I'm going to do whatever I can to help you. And, you know, I've got thousands of people in the community, obviously, but but every time someone joins, I do that. Is that not the weird That thing is, <laughs> but
0: that's a manifestation of that's an action. That's a love of sure. the verb. Absolutely. Right? I mean, come on, who like who who really does that? Like, that is an amazing action of what works for you to connect with someone. And I appreciate, I'm just gonna do well, no, I'll do it later. Uh, we'll <laughs> fix it. Um, I appreciate what you were saying about being on the stage. Mm. Because that's got to be, that is actually probably a hard, um, yet in the moment decision of putting the super ego aside, which is hard, right? We're professional speakers. You go in there, you don't want to bomb, you want to be great, you want to perform, you want to entertain, you know, whatever that is. But in fact, the way that you do that is what you just said is expressing and giving love through your showing up for them, not for you.
1: Absolutely, and um, and, and this does feed back into this virtuous circle of habits and disciplines as well, Trish. Because mm-hmm. um, as my high performance coach says to me, you never know when someone's going to need you to be your best. Hmm. So she just says, you know, you've got to you've, you've got to constantly be thinking about, you know, when you're making your choices every day you know, are you at your best? Are are you being your best for other people? Because you never know when someone's going to need you to be your best. And yeah, this is this is true. Every time I sit down to record a podcast, same deal. You know, people are going to need me to be my best today. I've got to I've got to bring everything I can to it.
0: So now let me just flip it, flip it to the other side, which is is there a time in which you feel guarded or that you withhold? Giving all of that love, and if if so, just why?
1: These days, not so much, Trish. I think, Great. in my corporate life, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. I don't I don't very often say I'm really terrible at something, but when it comes to industrial relations and dealing with labour unions, I was terrible. I, I I just had no tolerance for it. I I couldn't oh. stand the lack of integrity and the shenanigans. And look, they're not all like that, don't get me wrong, but we dealt with some pretty hard industrial left-wing unions there in Australia when I was in industries like mining and energy and transportation. So these were very difficult interactions to have. And I suspect that I probably wasn't capable within myself of giving the love forward that would have made a difference to that situation hmm. because I was too tied up in my own sense of righteous indignation about how they would behave. And I sort of wonder occasionally, not very often because I've got plenty to <laughs> wonder about, but I do wonder yeah. occasionally whether that would have been different if I had been in a position where I was strong enough and um, impartial and balanced and centered enough to give that love in that situation as well. because. You you can feel what people are uh, are emanating in terms of energy when they walk into a room. I have no doubt I walked in there and they've gone, oh, you know, look at this arrogant bastard. You know what I mean? I have no doubt that that's what they thought. And they're probably well justified for that. So I think that's probably one time where I've not been able to give love, whether I withheld it consciously or subconsciously, probably subconsciously. But, you know, it was never a good outcome. And, and not for them, not for me, and it was adversarial, as it had always been for hundreds of years, you know, in these in these sorts of interactions. And I wasn't able to change that, and that's just the way it went. But you know, it'd be interesting if I went back now and tried it, see what happens.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, not I'm I going. Swear- to. I got, I got You're to. not going to, right? There's a, <laughs> as you said, there are a lot of glasses of red wine from then to now. Absolutely. We're not Absolutely. going backwards. Last question. Last question. Part of giving love, part of embracing love is receiving it. Mm -hmm. So you're a giver. How does it feel to receive the love that others want to give you?
1: I'm getting used to it. It feels awesome and I'm getting used to it. And I think it's particularly uh, part of the Australian culture, which is, you know, when people compliment you, it's embarrassing. It's not something where you say, oh, that's really awesome. I'm going to sit in this and enjoy the compliment and, and thank the person. It's a case of no, 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 it was nothing really. So this is part of Australian culture as much as anything else. And the, the ability to actually accept that when people, you know, send uh, emails and direct messages and things like that to say, you know, your contents really changed my life. Just with, you know, stalking people on LinkedIn, I sit back and I really try and absorb that and I really try and say, uh, you know, I'm so glad I was able to help you. I really love that this has been something that you can do and I, and I accept that and really take it on board now. And so it just makes me a much more relaxed and better person, I think, because yeah. I don't have that tension of resistance that I perhaps used to have. And that still yeah. comes hard to me. You know, there's some times where I just go, oh, well, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't one of my better points today or something like that. So I'm always quick to, to discard something but I'm consciously thinking about how to actually draw that love in, uh, and of course, with the people around me. You know, I, I spend my time with people who I know there is that that bond of love. You know, even if it's just a, you know, a sort of like a relatively close friend. You know, where where there's that bond of love, which has you know mutual appreciation, mutual respect, and that relaxation of you know I'm, I'm going to let you see who I am, and I think that's really really important.
0: Marty, thank you, thank you for choosing. Thank you, thank you to give and to receive with me today it was about 2 months ago when we were in you know we're doing our speaking thing together and you made a comment and it was marty the father comment and mm. and, and i said i want him on my interview series right now <laughs> i wanted to dive into marty the man and to provide our community, our audience, a view into you that is even more in depth into the no bullshit leader.
1: This is who you are,
0: and I'm so grateful.
1: Trish, I'm I'm, I'm so grateful that you've had me on your uh, podcast because, you know, for me, I do spend a lot of time talking about leadership, and it's rare that an interview will go this deep into me, and um, it's somehow liberating to be able to talk about this You know, openly. I always talk openly, but um, to to provide the platform for that, I just really appreciate.
0: I love it. It hindsight and maturity. Absolutely. Everybody, check out Martin G. Moore. You could call him Marty, but Martin G. Moore, your CEO mentor, or just go to any of your favorite podcast platforms and look up "No Bullshit" with an exclamation point for the I leader or leadership. No bullshit leadership. You'll find him. Download it. You can't. You just. Gotta get it, gotta listen, gotta watch, follow Marty. Thank you everybody for joining me. This is Trish Kendall, your host for the Choose and Become interview series. Thank you for joining me for our Choose and Become interview series. You could find this episode and others at trishkendall.com. Just go to trishkendall.com backslash choose-become-interview-series. Or if you have a question or just wanna leave a comment, email me. Trish at TrishKendall.com.